Our teaching tonight comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, and it reads as follows. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, uh, which means devoted or consecrated to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. In other words, this is just one example of many different ways that you pervert God's word. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you still so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, like sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is God's word. And this is actually really difficult uh, of a topic to teach. I'm going to be honest with you. This is once a year, I make it a point to really hit this topic of like religiosity and the relationship between the gospel and religion. And it's one of the most difficult and subtle topics to teach because the people who are most guilty of it are the least inclined to understand that it's an issue. So years ago, I had done a presentation uh, that afterwards another fellow pastor sort of scolded me for, uh, that he scolded me for using the word religion pejoratively. And, um, you know, he's saying, like, you, you shouldn't speak of it in such negative ways and, and whatever. And I was making a distinction in my presentation between the gospel of Jesus Christ and, like, man-made religion of the world. And I said, you know, I'm sorry I disagree with you because I actually think one of the most significant dangers to the Christian church in the 20th century was the false equivocation of moralism and religious ritualism as, like, the hallmarks of God's people. In other words, the distinction to me is that religion is by and large an external activity, an external ritual by which someone atones for themselves with God, whereas Christian gospel is internal regeneration that comes when you believe 
that Jesus did everything necessary for your salvation and now the Spirit of God dwells within you. And it isn't that Christianity doesn't have external expressions. It's just that they often vary from person to person what they are and they don't accomplish salvation at all. And see, I think that's fundamentally different uh, Christianity and religion. I th- one of the pieces of evidence that I would point to is in the early Christian church. So 2,000 years ago, Christianity then would have been the only religion, if you want to call it that, that had no temple, no priests, and no meritorious sacrifices. And therefore, if it doesn't fit that description, I'm not sure it's even quite right to call it a religion. Now, the other pastor obviously thought I was kind of making a big deal of nothing. He thought I was making a big deal of semantics. And yet, I feel like I'm taking my cues here from Jesus himself, who in this text, I'm sure the Pharisees think he's making way too big a deal of the cleansing rituals and why doesn't he just go along with the flow of the religious establishment of the day? Why can't he just follow the traditions that have passed down from century to century? You got to assume Jesus probably doesn't make a stink about something. Jesus doesn't cause trouble about something unless there's some kind of profound spiritual point that he's trying to get across. And he makes it clear which one, what point it is too because he says it no less than three, four, maybe five times in the text. He says it in uh, verses 15, verse 18, verse 20, verse 23. And then to his disciples, he's, he says, are you still so dull that you don't get this? And the point is this. The point real simply is it's not the stuff that you do on the outside that indicates, that, that excuse me, that causes you to be uh, clean on the inside. It's what comes from the inside out. So religion is outside in operationally and Christianity is inside out regeneration. What does that mean? All right. So let's, let's dig into the text a little bit. The first five verses, the Pharisees' accusation. If you were here last week, one of the things we mentioned is Jesus' popularity in ministry is getting so big that it's attracting the attention of famous people. So it's attracting the attention, for instance, of uh, Roman leaders like Herod Antipas, who we looked at last week. This time, we hear that Pharisees from down in Jerusalem are traveling all the way up to Galilee to observe Jesus. And what are they trying to find? They're coming there because, number one, they can tell he's, he's obviously spiritually influential in society. He's gaining popularity. Number two, he's already gained a reputation for flouting like the religious leaders of the day by disobeying some of their Sabbath regulations. And so what they would really like to happen here is they would like to observe him, catch him in a mistake, publicly criticize him, and therefore eliminate some of his social influence. And in the same way that Jesus was kind of flippant in their estimation about the Sabbath regulations, he was also flouting all of the restrictions regarding washing, cleansing, food consumption, all of that stuff was very closely related. All of that was very important to the Jewish leaders. In fact, the practice of ceremonial washing had existed amongst the Jewish people for centuries by this point. And the average Jew, probably in Jesus' day, assumed that these rituals came down from God. They didn't. In fact, if you study your Hebrew scriptures real carefully, God has actually very little to say about anything regarding ceremonial washings. He says a couple things to priests before they go and serve in the tabernacle and later in the temple, but to the average Jewish person, God says almost nothing about ceremonial types of cleansing. But here's the way the Jewish leaders tended to think. They tended to think, look, if it's beneficial for a priest to wash their hands and go through this cleansing ritual, not for sanitation and hygiene reasons, It was just for ceremonial, spiritual reasons. 
If it's good for a priest to do that before they go in and serve God at the temple, why wouldn't it be good for the average Jewish person to do this regularly too? And for that matter, if it's good to do it in certain holy places, on holy days, and holy occasions for holy events, wouldn't it also be good to do the exact same thing anytime you're doing something spiritual? Before you pray, you should ceremonially wash. And so they, these laws weren't actually in the Bible. Eventually, these ideas, which were applications of bigger principles, they became what were called the traditions of the elders. In fact, there's a specific name for them uh, amongst the Jews. They're called the halacha. And that just means a fence. It's a fence around God's law to try to protect the integrity of God's law. And by the 4th or 3rd century BC, the problem in all of this is the Jewish leaders had elevated them to the importance level of all of God's laws so that it went from God giving the Jews like 30 ceremonial laws to the Jewish leaders pumping that up to over 600 laws that governed every behavior in the Jewish life to this point. Now, again, let me just make this clear. These weren't given by God in the Bible. They were man-made rules that were elevated to the level of God's word. And in the process, people were actually starting to disobey God's word in order to keep the man-made rules. Okay? Now, this might sound very foreign to us, things like ceremonial laws. And so I want to put it in slightly more modern terms to see if it at least resonates, at least my experience. Let me put it in my experience. I'm going to exaggerate a little bit for effect, but not a lot. I grew up in a church that forbade jeans. You weren't allowed to wear jeans in church. For that matter, it wasn't like written in the bylaws or anything like that, or the Constitution, but it was, it was just understood. You don't do that. Like, if you're a good Christian, you're not going to do that. You also, tennis shoes, um, sweatshirts, hats, pretty much anything comfortable. By and large, my church forbade comfort. That was, unless, if you weren't a little uncomfortable with what you were wearing, then you weren't, you know, serving God. And so, the logic essentially worked like this. Well, James, little James, doesn't God deserve your best? Well, I guess so. It's hard to argue with that. Yeah, I think God probably deserves my best. And little James... If you were going to meet the President of the United States today, don't you think you'd want to dress up for him a little bit? Well, I suppose if I'm going to a big meal, I probably should dress up. And James, if you're going to dress up for the President of the United States, don't you think it makes sense that you would want to dress up for God too? I thought that's airtight logic. I can't. The conclusion, Jesus would be significantly more honored if I was wearing some ill-fitting dress slacks and a tight knot around my neck rather than something comfortable. Now, the problem with this logic is it's actually the very premise of the Lutheran Reformation. God's word doesn't say any of that. Don't tell me it like God said it when God's word doesn't say it. Don't elevate uh, and bind my conscience in such a way that God didn't say something, but you're saying it as though I should feel guilty if I don't live according to the traditions that you're handing down to me. Now, see, uh, this can go off in all sorts of different types of ways. One of the interesting things about it is Jesus and the early Christians did not fit those qualifications for worship. Like, that's the most obvious. I once overheard this, not at this congregation, I once overheard gossip, I know, at a different congregation, an older woman confront a younger pregnant woman for wearing open-toed sandals up to communion. And she felt very bad about it, the younger woman. And I said, 
you know Jesus literally wore open-toed sandals to communion, right? <laughs> the, why? Why do we care so much? Why is, so we're getting to the heart of what, self, what self-righteousness does to us. Why do we make personal man-made rules, prop them up so that we feel better when we can knock other people down when they don't meet our controlling man-made rules. Uh, One of my preferred uh, Bible commentators, Warren Wiersbe, can say it a little more tactfully than I can, but I think it's good and worth sharing. He says, The conflict in this day was not only between God's truth and man's tradition, but also between two divergent views of sin and holiness. That's the key. Where does the definition of what sin is? Who gets to say what sin is? Two divergent views of sin and holiness. This confrontation was no incidental skirmish. It got to the very heart of true religious faith. Each new generation must engage in a similar conflict. For human nature is prone to hold on to worn out man-made traditions and ignore or disobey the living word of God. It is true, and here's uh, like a counterpoint that's a good, I think, concession. He says, It is true that some traditions are helpful as reminders of our rich heritage or as cement to bind generations, but we must constantly beware lest tradition take the place of truth. It does us good to examine our church traditions in light of God's word and to be, here's a great word, courageous enough to make changes. Plot point two. Jesus' condemnation and illustration. So this is verses like 6 through 13. The majority of the Jewish leaders, the majority of Jewish people and practitioners would not understand or agree with the point that we just made. Uh, Evidence of that, a leading rabbi in the second century, one of the most quoted rabbis in Jewish history uh, in various writings, Rabbi Eliezer, in the second century wrote, he who expounds the scriptures in opposition to tradition has no share in the world to come. And in the Mishnah, a collection of Jewish traditions that are written in the Talmud, it says, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. Jesus wouldn't tolerate that attitude and it got him killed. But we shouldn't tolerate that attitude in churches either. Now, Jesus goes on and he quotes, he's got harsh words for the Pharisees. He quotes from Isaiah 29 and he calls them hypocrites and he says you go through the external motions of stuff that looks very religious and spiritual but on the inside nothing is really there except wicked self-righteousness and uh, the evidence he points to some evidence of this it's actually in verses 9 through 13 where he addresses this korban issue anytime you have a word that is not actually translated you know there's a cultural nuance to it that's really kind of weird the korban thing is this Okay, so the Jewish people at that time, ancient Semitic people, were very inclined towards the health and wellness of family. In fact, the honor your father and mother, which is a commandment from God, was considered by some rabbis to be like the ultimate commandment. And yet, a tradition had risen up amongst the Jews of this thing called korban. In fact, there's some artifacts that we have with korban actually written on it. And it simply means consecrated or dedicated to the Lord. And it was a financial thing. What it is is this. 
uh, people at that time could say a portion of some of their financial prosperity was dedicated to the Lord and that served as part of their offering, part of their tithe. And so if their family who was in need, remember there's no social security in those days, there's no government assistance for aging family members. If you have older family members, it was assumed that the younger members of the family and the community were going to take care of them. But if you dedicated something as korban, and like I have given this for service in the temple and as money to the temple, and you said, that's part of my tithe, then it can't be touched to help out my parents. And so the example might look something like this. Well, I'm selling my oxen, and I'm going to give my proceeds as part of my tithe to the temple. And yes, my parents could use a little financial assistance right now, but I've already dedicated this money, and I've labeled these things as korban. Rather than meeting, here's how it works, rather than meeting my tithe, by taking more money out of my own pocket. So like giving some money to my parents, but taking more money out of my own pocket to meet a mandatory tithe, I will say I've already dedicated this stuff to the Lord and therefore I can't give it away any more money, even to support parents. It was a man-made tradition. It sounded spiritual. It was leveraged for greed and it prevented believers from showing compassion to one another, even family. And Jesus is using this as an illustration of how sinful, sinister, and self-righteous religious hearts can get. He doesn't say this is the only example. He says this is one of many examples. We prop up our own rules to the level of God's word and in so doing, we ease our consciences and we hurt other people by trying to make ourselves feel better in the process. Now, you say, well, maybe I'm not that judgmental. I don't think I'm that judgmental. The mere fact that you and I are ever judgmental shows that we struggle with self-righteousness. I've actually had some people, I've heard some people say I'm not a very judgmental person. And I'm like, you mean you're not judgy like all those judgy people over there? Do you know what, you know what that is? Like, you know what you just did? The people who are most inclined to be self-righteous are the people who don't understand how self-righteous they are, in fact. Every single one of us struggles with this. It's a problem from day one. It was a problem in Jesus' ministry. It was the thing that Jesus warned as arguably the biggest threat to believers. That brings us to plot point three, Jesus' declaration and explanation, verses 14 to 23. I mentioned earlier in the introduction that at least three times in this text, he gives this explanation that it's not what somebody does on the outside that comes into them that makes them clean or unclean. And he actually, it's a very clear illustration, like food. They had labeled some food as clean or unclean. When you put food inside of you, it doesn't go into your heart. It doesn't, or it shouldn't. It, it doesn't go into your head. It goes into your stomach and then it passes out. And Jesus is saying, okay, look, the stuff that you eat, the stuff that you consume doesn't affect your overall character all that much. It's what comes from your heart on the inside out. And that's where he lists a bunch of like potential sins that can come out of a faulty heart. He says, that's what's really important here. So, okay, the point is that genuine spiritual purity cannot be attained from outward in living, but from inside out, inward out living. It's not about your hand washing. It's not about touching certain things. It's not about certain foods. It's about what's in your heart. And it's at this point that Mark tells us in his gospel, this is a very important parenthetical statement. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Why is that important? So Jesus was criticizing the Jewish leaders for their traditions and elevating them to God's word. Jesus was not criticizing the ceremonial law. That's what the Jewish leaders were accusing Jesus of criticizing. He wasn't criticizing the ceremonial law. He was criticizing the traditions propped up to the level of God's laws. 
Jesus loved the ceremonial laws so much that he actually fulfilled the ceremonial laws. And yet he understood well that those laws were only designed to point ahead to a reality that would be found in him. And therefore, that's why he can say, that's why he can declare all foods clean. Why? Because God himself had declared certain foods clean and unclean to keep the Jewish nation sanctified and separate from the rest of the world until the Messiah came. But when the Messiah comes and fulfills all ceremonial laws, not only can Jesus, as God himself, declare all foods clean, but he practically has to declare all foods clean in order for evangelism to be done. Now, I'm going to explain that in just a second because the early church is a massive tension point. But uh, for our purposes, let me just make this very clear. The New Testament is absolutely consistent from the tearing of the temple, the curtain in the temple uh, at Jesus' death to the Apostle Paul telling the uh, uh, Colossians, um, do not let anybody judge you by your ceremonial expressions. Uh, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is now found in Christ. To Paul talking to the Philippians and saying it's not about physical circumcision. It's about spiritual circumcision. The New Testament is completely consistent and thorough in this idea that prescribed cultural ceremonial rituals are done. And practically, they have to be done because cultural rituals are prohibitive to taking the gospel to a new culture. If you say the gospel has to fit a certain culture, the next time you try to take the gospel to a different culture, you're not going to be able to have that conversation with them. This was a massive tension point in the early Christian church because the the ceremonial cleansing, the eating regulations between Jews and Gentiles. If you cannot go to a marketplace and have a conversation with somebody, if you cannot sit down at a table and have a meal with somebody, how are they ever supposed to trust you in having a meaningful, gospel-filled conversation? You have to necessarily strip away your personal preferences and ceremony and culture in order to get the gospel into the lives of some. Um, And so very clearly we see this here. Mark has made it very clear in his gospel that Jesus has to scold not only the Pharisees, but also his own disciples for their kosher, separatist, holier-than-thou cultural expressions and arrogance. So what does that mean? We could go so many different directions and applications, but um, I'm actually just going to, for time's sake, I'm going to keep it to one. Please only feel guilty about actual guilt. And even when you feel guilty about that, let Jesus take it. I would say half of the pastoral counseling that I do is for people who experience a level of guilt or inadequacy, not over actual sin, but over what I would call either religiosity or from a culture-based value system. This is the reason why every human being, to some extent, is doing some level of ceremonial washing. What do I mean by ceremonial washing? In your life, if you examine your life real carefully right now, my guess is you currently are doing some kind of behavior, perhaps obsessively, because you feel inadequate and you're not content resting in the righteousness of Christ. Let me give you a couple examples that might make more sense. Some of us obsessively count calories because if I gained five more pounds, who could possibly love me? Some of us are so obsessed with success and career focus and perfectionism that we can't, like, we can't delegate anything to anybody and we can't ever really stop working 
because we so identify with that, that if that thing fails, who could possibly love me? Some of us parents tirelessly, and we tell ourselves it's just because we love our kids so much, and we do love our kids, but in reality, some of it is because if my child is not doing well, I have no value. Am I really a worthwhile person? Aiden and I watched uh, one of the newest Disney movies recently, Encanto. There's a, there's, man, I'm, I'm, I'm always blown away by how insightful Disney is on the way humans operate and their interactions and kind of poking fun at human foibles. But there's this song in the movie Encanto by the older sister named Luisa. It's called Surface Pressure. And in that song, she has lines like, under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I cannot be of service. That is like a hymn out of the Pharisees hymnal. Under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I cannot be of service. I'll tell you what, I myself, I'm certainly not immune to any of this kind of stuff. I just need to remind myself of it regularly. About a week ago, I finished a book. It's really good. It was really helpful. I learned all sorts of great stuff from it. And immediately after I finished it, I felt absolutely terrible. You know why? Because I found out that the guy who wrote it was younger than I am. And you know what I thought? I didn't consciously think this. I didn't verbalize this. I just felt bad about myself and I figured out what it was. I was like, look, if somebody younger than, I, younger than me can write something more spiritually insightful than me, why would anybody possibly love me? We're all obsessively washing all the time. We're all trying to clean away that dirty feeling that I'm not enough. Unless I perform well, I'm unlovable. And you know what Jesus' therapy for that approach to like religious love is? I think what he typically does is he comes in and he holds your hand. He allows you to fail. And then he gives you a hug. It deprograms you of that performance-based identity. And so sometimes a lot of us have gone through this experience before. I know I certainly have. When you morally fail so severely that it seems like everybody hates you and leaves you, but Jesus is still standing there. And for that matter, when the thing that you think defines you, the thing, one thing that you think you're good at, you bungle that. And Jesus still comes in and tells you how proud he is of you. Or for that matter, when you do the thing that you think defines you and you work super hard and you realize that in some way, shape, or form, comparatively, it's not good enough. And yet you still realize you're more loved than you've ever been by God through Jesus. When you, like when you taste that stuff, that's when you start to cross over from a religious understanding of God to the gospel of grace. Now, I'm not even going to touch on the last couple verses here. In the last couple of verses, that's that full massive list of different ways that the heart can express itself in sin, lewdness and sexual immorality and theft and murder and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's not because it's not important. And I just want to say that real quick. I'm not saying it's only that whatever goes on in the heart that matters, the stuff that happens on the outside doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. Sin defiles us. Whether it is uh, the bad stuff that God tells us not to do or whether it is the good stuff that we often fail to do, disobedience to God defiles us. That's important. But it's a slightly different sermon. For tonight, what I'm going to say is just when you feel guilty, make sure you do not allow yourself to feel guilty for man-made religious rules or for a culture-based value system. 
you know, I'm not thin enough, I'm not smart enough, I haven't achieved enough. That's, that's satanic deception. Don't disagree with God. God thought enough of you to go through hell to pay heaven to save relationship with you. Don't disagree with his value system. His value system says you are indispensable. So you have to rebuke any guilty feelings that come in your life. If you come, if you come to me and tell me about how anxious you are and how troubled you are and whatever, and it's guilt over something that isn't actual guilt, I'm not going to tell you you're forgiven for that. I'm going to refuse your repentance on that. I will only accept repentance on genuine sins. You must rebuke guilty feelings that are not spirit-given. You must lovingly defy religious people. And for that matter, you know, I said probably half the counseling that I do is not for actual guilt. And then you say, well, what about the half of the time that actually is guilt? What do you do with that guilt? You leverage it to help understand better how much God loves you. See, it's impossible to know how much somebody loves you, the depths of their love for you, unless you recognize the lengths that they've gone to save your relationship, to save you. Um, with each passing day, our debt to God accumulates. But he never asks us to pay for any of it. He says, I'm, I just, I paid all of it at the cross. I um, just ask you to see how rich I am and how generous I am. Let him put his arm around you and pay your bill. I'm thankful. Normally, I don't advocate the concept of like a trophy wife, but I'm really thankful to be Jesus' trophy wife. <laughs> he did everything, and in the process, he made me beautiful, and I get to stand by his side. And you're right there with me. That is the best thing any human being can ever possibly be. Be grateful for grace. Don't allow anyone to make you feel guilty for non-biblical reasons. Accept the gift of Jesus. Rest in his righteousness. Stop being so religious and enjoy the freedom that comes in living as a Christian. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, we lay our under-the-surface feelings of worthlessness at your cross and we gladly pick up your gift of righteousness. We lay down our self-righteous religion. We receive your gift of grace. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.